Welcome to The Caretakers, a show where we'll talk about what it means to be a caretaker on Earth. Whether we're intentional about it or not, we're all caretakers. We've been entrusted to take care of our family, our friends, our environment, and ourselves. We'll talk about strategies for taking care of yourself, mentally, physically, and spiritually. We'll talk about what it means to take care of others, from your neighbor across the street to the neighbor across the globe. This is going to be a journey of self-discovery and reflection, and we hope you join us as we strive to be the best caretakers we can be. Today, we're joined by somebody who inspired the Caretakers uh, podcast in the first place. Um, Dr. Adnan is a medical oncologist at Victoria Hospital and the chair and imam at the Muslim Wellness Network. He graduated from in medicine from Damascus University in 2012 and has a Bachelor in Islamic Studies from Umdurman University in 2011. And when I was thinking about with some of my friends, you know, what do I ask Dr. Adnan? What do I ask Sheikh Adnan? <laughs> Everybody wants to know more about you personally. They want mm. to know your background. They want to know about you as a child. <laughs> and so I've heard you say some things that I want to ask you about specifically. Sure. I heard you say, and this is a quote, sure. <laughs> I, I could have been professional in ping pong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so when I was younger, I, uh, I was a big football fan. I still, still am. And I, I played um, semi-professionally in a uh, second league team. I was a good left back. I was a very good left back, and yeah. I loved that role. And I, I busted my knees. I'm one of those uh, stories of like, the classical bad knees, and I've had like three surgeries in my knees. So I, at some point, uh, the doctor told me, "Look, you just have to. You can't. You can't play football anymore. So go do something else." So I picked up uh, table tennis, and uh, Subhanallah, we um, I ran a, a Quran program in, in the village, and we had access to this uh, um, uh, club. It was, a, it was the only club, uh, sports club, that existed in the, probably the whole region. And it was empty on the inside, so I, w my friends and I, we bought a, a table tennis table. Like I actually got a table and got the stuff and the gear. And the funny thing is we started playing, and I had a friend of mine, Omar, we played together for a while, and we were getting better. And then we heard, this is the, actually this is a true story. So what happened was the uh, Syrian uh, national team brought a Chinese... Uh, <laughs> A coach to, to train them. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but they fought with them, and he didn't. He couldn't speak a word of Arabic. This guy, and they, they ended up not. He didn't end up coaching them. And he went, and he was living maybe three kilometers away in a, in a, a city called Qatana. And he was because he had come based on recommendation of a, an old champion, uh, Syrian champion, and he was living there. So he stayed with him. So he went over right. there to see what he's doing, <laughs> what he's doing, and he wasn't doing anything. He was just hanging out. So I, so he asked him if he would train us. So he trained us for like maybe a month and a half. He would go there every day, and we at night, and we would play for a couple of a couple of hours and he was you remember the ever seen the uh, this is the, I'm going to sound very old a karate kid yep so there was a Mr. <laughs> Miyachi I think his Mr. name was Miyagi, uh, Miyagi and he was uh, the, the, the thing that <laughs> So he was like that, and he made us like you had to stand a certain way, you had to hold the uh, the paddle in a certain way, had to do things. So he's very hard, but uh, we learned from him. We learned from enough that we uh, started playing he and I uh, doubles uh, nationally, okay. and we played nationally a few a bit, and uh, we won I think one tournament nationally. Uh, it wasn't uh, on the highest level; it was it was on the uh, province level. We won one thing, and then I played. Uh, we played singles. Uh, he actually did better than I did, but I got to the quarterfinal once, uh, Yanni, in the, on the. Um, and national level. So we played a little bit. We could have gone far, far farther, but I, I got uh, caught up with residency and stuff and we kind of had to stop it. But right. uh, I still play. Like when I, when I find, a, there, there is a, a table tennis club here in London that I went and played uh, in for a while, but um, okay. they, they're, not, uh, they're, not, they're not that great. Uh, <laughs> and of course, I'm much fatter than I was before, so, <laughs> so I'm not as good. But uh, yeah, no, I love the, it's a really fun, it's, a, it's actually the best cardio you'll ever get. Like if you want, uh, if you're someone who's interested in sports and want to, does, want, want to do, wants to do cardio, just learn to play table tennis. Honestly, you'll play for an hour, and that's you'll be 
Uh, what's what's Captain's Amer Captain America's name? What's that? Uh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, no, Chris something else. Uh, Chris, Chris Evans. Evans. So Chris mm -hmm. Evans actually was on a. Uh, uh, I think it was. I don't know. I think it was a podcast, but it was on a um, uh, an interview. And uh, Mashallah, he's a he's a monster. So they asked him like, how do you stay so fit? So he said ping, ping pong. pong. So they have to laugh <laughs> at him. And he's like, no, no, I'm I'm serious. The 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 cardio is in ping pong. And they actually went and watched him, and he's really really good, Mashallah. <laughs> 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 so that's my my ping pong story. So that's gonna be uh, taking care of yourself physically. You get, I mean, pick yeah, up a ping pong racket. I, I, I don't do very well anymore, but sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I've I've another uh, another thing I heard you say. You talked about the fact that you used to ride motorcycles quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> in, in Syria, it's the art of, um, of 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 mentoring younger people. So you have to be cool. To mentor younger people, especially if you're young, if you're in your 20s, you have to do that. And a lot of people here don't understand that piece. So, so I uh, in, in the Bidliya, I always had uh, there are no cars really, so people use either they walk bicycles or motorcycles. So everyone has almost everyone has a motorcycle, but I had like a nice Yamaha. It was really, it was, it's not it's not a sports uh, motorcycle, but it's something that I really loved. I loved the and I used to use it to go to, like, to the masjid. So I, I would and I had a, uh, a brown a leather, leather jacket. jacket <laughs> and I, my hair was long, by the way. It was it went back in a little, bit, not really a full bun, but it went. I had to hold it back with something. So I would <laughs> ride up to the masjid on a motorcycle, leather jacket, and my hair <laughs> sent back. So the kids listened to everything I had to say. <laughs> I'm not that cool person anymore, but that was, uh, yeah, no, uh, having a motorcycle is amazing. He, he, it's hard here to get an actual license uh, yeah, for yeah. it, and I don't think it's as feasible, but uh, in, in uh, villages, it's, it's amazing, uh, especially in places that are warm, uh, so you're kind of yeah, you're yeah. riding out in the, uh, in the open. I, 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 I absolutely loved it. Uh, I hope, inshallah, one day to get a motorcycle, back. but Abdurrahman Lewandi, Dr. Lewandi will kill me if I get a motorcycle. <laughs> <because> <laughs> any any uh, orthopedic or, or spine surgeon will tell you that the worst thing you can do is... is by yourself a motorcycle. motorcycle because they see they see the worst part of it like right. they see what actually happens when you're uh, when you're not careful right <laughs> so you ride drive but safely exactly yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. there's a couple of brothers who come here who actually have uh, motorcycles and they have like beautiful bikes i'm not sure if you if you've seen them before but they're really really nice bikes we'll look out for, we'll look out for them then yeah. <laughs> okay and then on your uh, last personal note just the history sure. um i noticed before you even started you were watching english premier league yeah i'm giving up something big for this podcast so you have to be very very, very thankful <laughs> I've been watching the Premier League since I was maybe six or maybe five years old. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's the sport I it's, it's my poison, Yanni, of choice in yeah. terms of what I like to watch, but I enjoy uh, football for sure. I'm a big football nut, and uh, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed to talk about how much I know about this sport. Yeah. I shouldn't know as much as I do. <laughs> but I'm one of those guys, if you actually get me uh, worked up talking about soccer, I'll go into like long rants with people on sorry, aspects. Mm -hmm. so the Premier League is, is my uh, Saturday, Sunday morning. That's it. You don't talk to me. Don't come into my room unless you're bringing with you some popcorn and uh, <laughs> something to watch the game with me. Then I'm not. I'm out of commission for that hour. And people uh, want to know who do you support? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Man United fan. Anyone yeah. who's born in the '80s is a Man United fan because they, they just have the. If, if they're a Premier League uh, 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 supporter, then Man United. It was the, the moment Eric Cantona flipped his uh, his collar. Uh, <laughs> that <laughs> that's, it. that's it. I was sold. <laughs> uh, I, I actually watched the famous 1999. Uh, Champions League final when Man United played Bayern Munich and they won the last minute. It was a, it's a, it's a one of the, probably probably the most famous um, uh, European club moment in, in history of the game. And I was I was I watched it live. Of course, I wasn't there, but I watched right, it right. live and. Uh, Something that I <laughs> that you hold the new chair. Yeah, exactly. eh? <laughs> no, this, the the team sucks now. I've, I've I've been depressed for ten years plus since Alex Ferguson left. But uh, still, I I enjoy watching. It's fun. So, and my my son, he's uh, of course he's born in two thousand and twelve, so he's a Man City fan because okay. that's that's the team he's born into. So you know, I get to have a little bit of a rivalry there. <laughs> right. So you mentioned your son. Um, 
You're a doctor. Mashallah, you are mm. a sheikh. Uh, you enjoy uh, ping pong motorcycles <laughs> and the uh, Premier League. <laughs> How do you manage your time? I don't know that I've ever met anybody quite mm. as busy as you are. I, I, this is, I get this question a lot and I find it really difficult to answer because I really don't, I honestly, uh, I mean, um, genuinely don't feel that I do too much I need to, to manage time. Maybe maybe because I got used to cer a certain lifestyle when I was younger uh, that just kind of comes a little bit more naturally, but I really don't feel that I do anything special. Uh, when, I was, when I was younger, all the, t all the shiuch that I had were very um, uh, picky when it came to time management. Like we were very clear on what, you know, they, they would ask the question a lot and they would hold you to it and they would see what, they would actually ask you exactly what you were doing and, and, and go, I don't do, I, I should be doing what, what they did for me. But they were much more strict and I was much more willing to stick around even if they were. And I find that most of the people I deal with, uh, if I push a little bit, they just, uh, they, they, put, they, they walk out. Like <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, to hold, the strictness piece doesn't work anymore. So you just have to be very, Patient. Uh, I was in it. Uh, that was it. My dad left me with the sheikh, and that's it. He told me, you know, if he kills you, I don't care. Like, I'll, 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 just, can just, I'll just bury you in the backyard, so no, no problem. <laughs> Maybe you should take that off. The <laughs> 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 There's a saying, uh, if you send back a adam, we'll just bury you, no problem. So that's what. So I, I knew that I had no way around it. So whatever they held me to. I had to, I had to be held to like I had to do it so time management was a big piece of it and it was just it was just scheduling just scheduling your day making sure that you're not there, there are no uh, there's no time in the day that's not accounted for right you know what I mean like there's you're not just uh, even if you're you know, I, I I take care of my leisure like I I, play, I watch sports I spend time with my dad and my uncles and we play cards and like I enjoy my time I just it's all scheduled like I know what what timing that's going to happen so I'm not just sitting there. I think people don't when you don't schedule your time you're not used to doing it you end up wasting a lot of it there's a lot of dead time like time that's just not accounted for that you don't do anything for yourself uh, within it meaning you're not benefiting uh, or you're making your life more stressful right like if you're sitting on doing nothing just scrolling scrolling just makes you uh, it, make, it, it tires your eyes it tires your brain it tires your psyche so you get nothing out of it. You know what I mean? Like you mm -hmm. spent an hour. That hour now requires like a couple more hours of, of rest for it. To, so it's like it's, it's taxation. So you have to just get rid of those that dead time and utilize the dead time to do good stuff. Like if you're standing in line, if you're driving your car, you should. What are you doing? When you're driving your car, what are you doing? Araja ajizi. Right. I need to keep the Quran. You have to do muraja two, three juz a day at least. Uh, or I should forget it. So when I'm driving, that's when I do the weird. Do the, 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 when I'm standing in line, like, whenever there's time that's dead, it's really not dead. I'm just I'm putting something in it so that I can utilize it, uh, right. you know, appropriately, so that there's something being taken out, taken out of the. Um, out of my way, and I have a super wife. Yani. Honestly, if it wasn't for my wife, I I wouldn't be here. Like she 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 picks up a big uh, yani aspect of this work. Like she'll uh, if you're married, you have kids. You need someone at home who who believes in what you're doing and is willing to support you doing it, and you know accept that you're not available as often. You don't go like we don't go. All, Places very much like right. we don't, like, our our uh, travel log is really pathetic. Like we don't <laughs> 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 if I say the word Niagara in front of my wife, she she, <laughs> she threatens me with divorce. Like <laughs> I've taken her there so many times. <laughs> All of our family memories are somewhere in Niagara Falls. It's like we live right. there <laughs> because it's, it's just a two-hour drive and stuff. But, but yeah, the, the, there are certain sacrifices you have to make. Yani. I'm not sure some people yani, maybe aren't. Uh, I would say just go back and look at your schedule, like uh, uh, log your, your week, not your day, log a week, log right. from like Monday to end of Sunday and just take a look at it. Uh, don't do anything artificial. The problem is people when they log their weeks, they start to size themselves up to do better. No, no, just log a regular week um, by at the end of the day, just put what you did that day and then look at it and then you'll identify 
like a lot of time that it w that nothing happened that was of benefit to you. And if you just insert some stuff with consistency, you get very far. Right. Like with consistency, with maybe 10 minutes a day of reading something. Like, uh, like I have a habit of reading 10 hadith every day. Every day I read 10 hadith. Uh, I, I, used to, I used to have a journal where I'd write one of them down that I really, that I want to stick with me. Yani. But you do that every day for, for 20 years. You know, you've covered everything. Like you've listened, right. you've, you've read all of the hadith that are, you know, so, you know I mean, like, uh, and you know them all. And the same thing if you're like a, 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 as a physician, if every day I read 10 minutes of uh, worth of, of abstracts or journals, then I, then I know more than I would have if I didn't. Right. Yeah. That for me was the big difference. When I started managing my time, I was, the thing that made me f really start to manage my time is getting married. Yeah. And <laughs> I was working full time and I was writing professional exams. There you go. And so yeah. for me, the thing that I struggled with the most was yeah. guilt. Yeah. Is I would be watching TV with my wife yeah. and thinking I should be studying. Yeah. yeah or yeah. I should be, I was at work yeah. and thinking, oh, I should be studying or I should be spending time yeah, with my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Once I started scheduling to say, okay, yeah. I'm going to spend time with my wife yeah, exactly, on yeah. Saturday night. Yeah. That way when I'm yeah. doing that, I know that Sunday morning I'm studying. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no guilt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. and you put wait, wait. everything into you Give that everything moment. the time that it needs and just right. make sure that you respect that time. I, I schedule leisure also religiously. Right. Like I, as, I, as I schedule, yani, uh, obviously the work and uh, prep, you have to have, there's some degree of prep for work and for you know, massage, you have to have some prep and meetings and stuff. So it's all scheduled. Um, so I don't feel, because I know that this is my day, I know what I'm doing in that day. It's actually not, it doesn't, some people think it's, uh, you know, it's restrictive or boring. It actually is not. It's actually very, very refreshing. Very you feel really good. Yeah. Like you feel very good if you do it. And you get a lot done. You get yeah. a lot done yani, in your day if you do that. And uh, you, know, you just have to kind of don't sleep too late. Wake up reasonably early. You know, uh, invest in your, in your personal mindfulness. Uh, people who don't meditate or think, you know, engage in deep thought, they end up uh, uh, feeling that there's no baraka in their day because your mind, your brain has to think about things. Like it has to internalize concepts. And if you don't give it time to internalize stuff that it heard throughout the day or problems that are occurring, then it's like you're carrying this burden and that burden that you carry, it's like you're trying to walk, right? And if you're walking with, uh, with, a, with a couple of extra kilos on you, then you're gonna walk slower. So that burden, that mental burden, you have to remove, and that requires just time where you're just sitting there doing nothing, just thinking, just think. Right. Like even that is scheduled. Like just sit right, down, right? right. You sit, and I'm just going to, you know, there's a couple of things that are in the back of my mind that I have to deal with. So I sit there and I think about them. And sometimes it's an emotional uh, thought process because there's something that happened that bothered you that you haven't really kind of dealt with on a personal level. It's not, per it's not a perfect system, but I think it's. Uh, I think it's helpful a lot. And that's the best I can offer. I mean, most people ask this question. I, I can't really, I don't know what else to say. I mean, alhamdulillah, inshallah, I don't think that I'm doing that great, honestly. But if I say that, people get offended, so I shut up. <laughs> so, so I don't say anything. But, but I don't think that I'm, you know, there's anything special. Uh, you can probably do better than I am doing if you just schedule your time a little bit. And, you know. <laughs> right. And you mentioned a little bit about sleeping early and waking up early. So I want to ask you about your sleep schedule. I know so, Ramadan is coming yeah, up. And yeah, that's Ramadan, a different is different. <laughs> Ramadan is a different uh, story. Ramadan, I, I, you, I walk, you walk in accepting that you're going to get less sleep, Yanni, all together. I make it right. up, make, make up for the less sleep on the weekends. And then I take, I schedule my time off on Ramadan, like in July. Like my time off in April was scheduled in July. People think I'm insane in that work. And I go, no, right. no, no, here's Ramadan. Here's what it's going to be. I do not schedule anything at the end of April because I need those last 10 nights for tahajjud. And, for, and then you kind of just, uh, you know, power through Ramadan. And alhamdulillah, uh, this year, inshallah, I will have no call. It's honestly, oh, okay. for me, it's the call. If I'm on call right. and I'm here in scrubs and then, you know, taking pages and then going to the hospital. Like last year, I had to, right before Fajr, I had to leave. I, remember was, that, uh, yeah. I had to go back to the hospital. So I had to say, someone 
bleed and if someone has a khatira to give, if not, then people, <laughs> usually a dars, I couldn't give it, I have to go to the hospital. But alhamdulillah, this year, inshallah, I won't have any call, which is very generous of the people I'm working with to kind of keep my Ramadan schedule open in terms of being on call. Um, it's all about what your standards are in life. I don't know if this is going to be helpful for you now, but it's about standards. Like if you're used to a certain standard, when you make it more difficult, you feel worse. If you hold yourself to a really high standard all the time, then any, you know, any, any ease that you get, you feel better about. Like for me, if I'm not on call in Ramadan, I'm happy. Even if I'm sleeping five hours a night or four hours a night, it's fine because at least right. I'm not on call. Because that's my standard. The standard is that you keep you keep a difficult standard for yourself because life is based on expectations. If I expect you're going to give me 80 uh, and you give me 70, I'm upset. But if I expected 50, then that 70 sounds really good. Right. So expectations make a big difference in our psyche and how we look at things. So most people aren't good at doing that because they expect, unfortunately, this is what I see, they expect a lot from life, from mean that which surrounds them in life like the environment and people and what they get and they expect less from themselves you just need mm -hmm. to turn that table around a little bit right. expect nothing from people around you expect a lot from yourself and suddenly if you expect zero from people if they give you 10 you're like wow <laughs> thumbs up yeah. <laughs> but if i expect 20 or 30 and then i'm not happy so so it's really is that simple in my if you want my advice on it is that simple it's really that simple you expect more of yourself suddenly Suddenly, you you know you, you change. It's a complete change, a shift of mentality altogether. And if you expect nothing from people around you, like if Allah yeah, he helped me in something, oh, I am extremely grateful. If I expect from him to be here every time I come in, and one time he's not, then we're not going to be happy. I'm gonna I'm gonna have a problem with him later on. So it's really about expectations that you carry in life, and it, it'll go. It'll take you a long way in marriage with your children, with your <laughs> employees or employers. The more the less you expect from people, and the more you expect from yourself, the just the happier person you end up being. You work harder for sure. But I believe the more you work, the more experience you have, you learn more, become better at what you do. Like it's, it's all at the end, you know, it helps you at the end. Like if I go in, ho in the hospital, I'm expecting to see maybe five patients that day. And I end up seeing seven. But if I'm going in, I'm like, I'm gonna see the whole list. And then someone sees two or three patients, I'm all happy, right? See, I saw more people than, I, than others are seeing and I worked harder, but it's helped me. I saw more patients, I have more experience now. I know more how to do my job better, so I'm actually, you know what I mean? So, so right, right. Not everyone sees it that way, but I will I don't think that's the that's one of the uh, one, one, one of the things that helped me in life. And I think if everyone thought about that a little bit, they may find that uh, that would help them as well. Wallahu right. Okay, so you mentioned uh, work. Now yeah. we're gonna get into the portion uh, yeah. that I really want to talk to you about. Um, so, what can you explain what you do? So, <clears throat> oncology, which is the study of um, uh, the, the medical study of cancers, right, um, requires a team of people because cancer is such a difficult disease to um, uh, to treat, and, and we, we have obviously no, no, we don't have perfect answers or perfect cures for it for, for for almost for most cancers, if not all of them. So you need a team. You need a uh, a surgical oncol uh, 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 oncol uh, surgical oncologist, meaning a, a, a surgeon that that specifies specializes in, in removing types of cancers, and it's not one type. Like a urologist has to specific specialize in taking out urological cancers, and a, a general surgeon will spe specialize. And taking out uh, GI, uh, the gut type of cancer. So there's a lot of different surgeons. And then when it comes, so there's the surgery. And then you need a radiation oncologist, uh, a physician who will treat uh, cancer with, with radi different doses of radiation. Um, and then you need a medical oncologist, which is what I do. You need a, an internal medicine physician who understands how the body kind of works on the inside, how blood work, uh, what, what effect cancer has on, on organs, and, how, um, and then treats uh, cancer with medications, which is what I do. I treat it with medications, whether it's chemotherapy, immunotherapy, targeted therapy, or other types of uh, hormonal treatment, for example. That's what I do. And then you need a, uh, 
oncological pathologist, like a pathologist who actually can get the, uh, the specimens and look at them through a microscope and, and diagnose. And you need a radiologist, an oncolo oncological radiologist. So a radiologist just reads the, the scans and tells us whether it's getting worse, it's getting better, if that uh, node is actually um, uh, cancerous versus, versus not. So you need a team of people. And then you need a lot of other, you need a psychologist and you need like a social worker and you need a palliative care team. So, so oncology is its own division in every single hospital. Like it's its own thing, just like pediatrics is its own thing, just like uh, 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 psychiatry is its own thing. This is oncology is its own section in every hospital because it requires a team effort. So I just I'm just a part of a puzzle, one piece of the puzzle where I treat uh, cancers with drugs. Usually, 90% of my patients are patients who have cancer that has already spread in their bodies, and it's going to take their lives at some point. And I can just treat with drugs to. Hopefully, to prolong life as far as we can tell from a biological perspective and give them good quality as they go through it. Um, that's the majority. We, we do do other stuff. Like I do treat patients who are, uh, who are aiming for cure, Shafiullah, but they're aiming for cure by treating them before surgery or right after surgery. But the majority of my patients, I'm, I, I do, uh, my specialty is genitourinary. So I treat uh, prostate cancers, bladder cancers, um, uh, kidney cancers, and testicular cancer. Those are the four, and then adrenal gland, which is very rare. But those are like the five types of cancer. There's a few other smaller stuff, but that's the kind of the main sites that I treat. The majority of my work is with uh, metastatic prostate cancer patients and metastatic kidney uh, cancer patients, meaning meaning they had cancer in, in the prostate or the kidney, and now unfortunately it's you have, you have spots of that cancer, that same cancer in parts of their body. Uh, most people think, oh, I have cancer in the bone. Bone cancer is very rare. Uh, it's usually a cancer that went to the bone. Mm. Just being in the bone doesn't make it that cancer. It's still the initial cancer is just in the bone, and then the, the treatment that we give is still the treatment that we give for that cancer. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I right. what I do. <laughs> and if I could back up a little bit, yeah. What you know, this may seem sound like a simple yeah. question, yeah. but what is cancer? So cancer, it's interesting. Cancer is basically when your cells, your cells undergo some form of mu mutation for some reason, uh, whether it's environmental, whether it's genetic, um, whether it's just time, and they stop behaving the way healthy cells behave. Like they stop dying when they should die. They stop responding to what the body wants them to do. Like every cell in your body has a, uh, a time uh, stamp on it, meaning they have to go through a process called apoptosis where they, where they just stop existing. They, 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 they basically die and they kill themselves so that they, and then the, all the ingredients are used to build the fresh newer cells. And then that's how we, that's how we exist. Um, it happens on a, meaning your brain doesn't do that very often. If you did that, then you, would, you wouldn't be the way we are today. So, but most of our cells on different levels do that. So when the, a, a human cell decides that it's not going to do that, it loses its response to its environment and it starts behaving in ways that does not respond to the needs of the body. It just starts to grow. And then it's taking up space, it's taking up resources, it starts eating away at other cells, and it just starts mm -hmm. basically killing, killing the body. And it's a mutation burden that we're still in the process. We're just skimming the surface of understanding why it's happening and how to slow it down or stop it from, 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 from actually occurring. So it's the difficulty of treating cancer is because it's you. Right? We can kill viruses and germs and bacteria and stuff because they're not us, but cancer is you. If we're going to kill it, we're... We're trying not to kill you too. <laughs> like right. we're trying to get rid of it. We don't want to mm. get rid of you too because actually it's your cells. It's not something foreign to you, which is why the body doesn't doesn't see it. Uh, most of the time, your immune system recognizes cancer. 
and keeps it at bay for years. And we don't know that it's there until the immune system, until those, until those cells learn how to camouflage themselves to the immune system, beat the immune system, and then they start growing. And then we come in and try to control it, but at that point, these cells have already learned really over years and years and years and years of, of, of fighting with the immune system how to deal with it. Like they've built a resistance to the natural ability to the body to deal with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. and so is it something that's that's always been around or is it yeah. relatively recent? Or? No, for sure. Cancer has been around forever. Um, it, it's more apparent today because we p people live longer. Because people live longer, it's it, we see it more. And because we have... A, a better medical system and our medical technology is much better. We're able to pick it up earlier, to, to, to recognize it, to define it. But historically, going back uh, thousands of years, people would die for reasons that, people, that others did not know. They would just get very, very sick and die, and they, no one would know why. And then they would describe symptoms where they would have ascites, maybe their stomachs would get really big, or they couldn't breathe anymore, or they would have this growth on their legs or on their neck or somewhere, and they would just pass away. And no one knew what it was. And the, uh, probably one of the earliest, uh, I worked in a hospital called Beiruni, in, in Syria, <laughs> and Imam al-Bayruni, he's a known uh, Muslim scholar, but he was the, a botanist, and he was the, one of the first people who documented this description of what he thought cancer was, and he's the first person to use uh, uh, derivatives of, of plants to treat cancer. Interesting. Which is what most chemotherapy, as, as horrific as chemotherapy can be sometimes, is, is extracted from, from, from plants. It's taken out of different types of plants, and it's used. So he was the first person to kind of really start describing that. It took, it took obviously centuries after that for this to become much more clear, but uh, um, subhanAllah, the, the Muslims were able to kind of see and talk about cancer. And, and there, there, there are certain descriptions of Sahaba and how they've passed away that I'm almost certain that there was some type of cancer that killed them because it was, most people would die from infections back in the day, right? Before antibiotics, that right. if you want to the surge as a human population, it was when OB-GYN became strong, which is obstetrics, because most, a lot of people die in birth, women would die at birth, and so, and, and so would children. So once we fixed that piece, and then we got antibiotics, so the population kind of went from a couple of million to a couple of billion within, within a very short period of time, because we were able to um, uh, you know, stop early, uh, prevent early deaths that can be, you know, I, as every death has a dawa for it, except just aging, you, know, you end up aging. But you definitely get more cancer the older you get, because your cells, aren't as young anymore, they start getting more mutations, they're undergoing so many carcinogens in the environment around them and the food that they eat, we eat and just in general, so we just end up having more of it. So almost every person, for example, over 90 has some degree of prostate cancer inside of them. Interesting. Almost all, all across the board. If you're 90, you probably have some degree of prostate cancer on the inside, but uh, it's just not diagnosed or didn't, uh, the body was able to contain, contain it. Uh, so something else took your life, not, not that. <laughs> well, and, and just in terms of the impact um, in, let's say in Canada specifically, yeah. like if we look at a per capita impact of a thousand people, how many? It's a good question. I don't actually know the last numbers, but the worse the healthcare system, uh, the more the prevalence of it, the more uh, there is exposure to carcinogens. For example, uh, asbestos for it was a big problem for a long time. So right. we, uh, that a lot of people got different types of lung cancer and mesothelioma and stuff like that from it. And then p paints, uh, lead. Uh, it, it, now we're much better at protecting people from from the carcinogens that exist within these uh, materials. But but many years ago, it was. Uh, but the prevalence is still there. Like we don't. Uh, we're not seeing oncology is a very taxing uh, department on any healthcare system. It, it's probably the most, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the department that has the most spending in any healthcare system, especially in CAT, is, is oncology because the drugs are so expensive. 
Okay. They're very expensive, and it's it's, it's, it's so mortal. Uh, that yeah, it, it's more it's it, 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 it's fatal. People so people will try want to try everything that's available to them. It's hard to tell somebody, Yanni, that you're there's nothing to give you anymore. So we always try mm -hmm. to come up with something to to help it out. Now there is some corruption there, but uh, that's Yanni a different uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and a lot of times you hear stories of people finding out they have cancer. They say, you know, I felt this thing and I went to go see the doctor, and yeah. all of a sudden I have yeah. cancer, and so. How how do people find out that they have cancer? So th the problem is that we don't have. So it's a good question. It's a very good question. Actually, it is the question. Um, what is better to treat cancer or to prevent it? I think that's a simple simple question with a simple answer. Obviously, preventing um, um, preventing uh, its occurrence is way better for the person. It's way better for the healthcare system. It's just better in every way. So the problem is we don't have a perfect we don't have the perfect tools to um, to uh, screen for cancers for all cancers like um, uh, this is this is where I believe more medical and and, and uh, governmental investments should exist like, the money should be put there I'll I'll tell this to you I'll, I'll tell you this so when we talk about if you ever heard like the you know the pharma corruption and whatever the big pharma and all that stuff the reason they talk about this in cancer specifically is because so much sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars put into uh, making a medication that will treat there'll be a third line treatment for a metastatic spread cancer meaning you already have it spread it's going to kill you but after you try the first medication and then the second one here's the third one that you made. So like hundreds of millions of dollars are put into finding that medication and then making it available. But a, a fraction of that money will not be put into figuring out how to screen for that cancer to begin with. Mm. So we're still using the same tools. We're still using old tools that aren't very sensitive, that don't pick up. Like for example, uh, prostate cancer, we have something called the PSA. You probably, if you have a, f a father over 65 or something, they've, they, they, their family doctor will run that test. It's not a perfect screening tool, but it's good enough for the majority of cases, when it goes up a little bit, you, you, can, you can get uh, people uh, in, in to see a surgeon. They can do a biopsy and look for, look for it. But for a lot of, uh, for example, mammograms have made a huge difference in the survival of, of breast cancer because right. you can pick up something really small. You can take it out before, the, by the time someone felt something on the inside, it was already into the lymph nodes. And it's, it's now it's just, it's a, yeah, you're, you're, right. you're, 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 you're trying to catch up. With, with what's happening um, same thing goes for colon cancer now we have a little bit some tools are a little bit better if we, if we uh, do colonoscopies after a certain age every couple of years so we're trying to figure that out but but a lot of other cancers like like for example lung cancer some people are like oh, i'll do a ct scan every year it doesn't mean we're going to find it there's always going to be like a spot that's weird in your body. You're, there's weird stuff inside of us all the time. So it's not it's not a perfect. So it's really the screening, uh, you know, piece that that that's missing today, for an average person. If that's your question. Yeah, that, that that's exactly my next yeah, question. Is yeah. like, I've got parents that are yeah. starting to age. I want to make sure yeah. that they're screening for these things. Yeah. What kind of things uh, should somebody in their early 60s, late yeah. 50s start looking so, at? So the guidelines are out there. I mean, you just have to be in touch with your family doctor and over a certain age, meaning, meaning you, if, you, if you can afford not to, be, not to have a family doctor in your 20s and 30s, fine. But in your 50s and 60s, you should have someone, a primary health care provider, so they can actually put you through the system of, of the screenings that we have. 
So, which is the three one, big ones that I pointed out for you, which is the the PSA for certain for men over a certain age, between sixty, you know, basically between sometimes not fifty nine, but sixty five to around around seventy nine. Like they, they they run it. I think I think these numbers even change. They change it every year. They're trying to figure out like what the right time to, to do these tests because sometimes you get a lot of po- uh, uh, false positives. Like you get a PSA that's high, there's nothing in there, mm-hmm. but that's a lot of work now. Right, because right. It, the person has to go through a lot of uh, you know have to do a biopsy. Biopsies bring the risk of bleeding and infections. And now this person is struggling with all these problems and he didn't cancer to begin with so 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 there's a way the, the, the family physician will help with, with with that they will make sure that you're getting your colonoscopies every couple of years based on your family history they'll do mammograms for ladies but outside of that like if there's someone's a heavy smoker a really heavy smoker then cat scans for this lung can can be helpful but it really it really comes down to uh, i think we do a little bit more communal education on like what what to stay away from for cancer like we still have a very high prevalence in the muslim community when it comes to smoking right Tobacco, specifically cigarettes, it's, it is for sure. You're going to get cancer. If you're smoking, 100%. If you live long enough, you're going to have a cancer. It's just a matter of how long you live. Like if wow. <laughs> it's almost impossible that you live. Uh, if you're, you, you'll, you'll reach a time where the, ca- the tobacco will or the tobacco product will cause some form of cancer. If it's not head and neck, it's lung. If it's not lung, it's blood. Something will happen for sure. Um, so educa- educating people on what to stay away from and then making sure that once they're of, of age or they have a family history that they get the proper screening. But it's not perfect. Right. Like there's no perfect answer to say how to make sure that uh, I'm not going to get it. Um, we're not there yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is not <laughs> maybe not what people want to hear, but that, that's kind of wh- where we are. Where we are. And you mentioned smoking. I mean, I think there's a lot of been there's been a lot of public education campaigns about smoking and we have seen mm-hmm. rates of smoking gone For sure. down. But at the same time, we've also seen things like e-cigarettes and vapes yeah, increase yeah. and especially in the younger group yeah. um, whether it's shisha or yeah, yeah, yeah. Gile, that kind of thing so what yeah. do you so it's it's we don't have a lot of evidence to support all we don't it's not it's not they're not like good right <laughs> <laughs> i can encourage people to do it but but it's not the, the 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 data that we have is mostly on cigarettes and tobacco um e-cigarettes we have data that it's, it causes other problems um for sure like in the lungs in terms of um there's a popcorn lung uh, phenomenon where, where you just it, it causes your lungs to get inflamed and sometimes like to have a bull eye and it kind of it can be very dangerous. Whether it causes cancer or not takes time. Like when it, whenever you pr- introduce something new to the to, to the public, it takes time for us to figure out if it's a carcinogen or not or how much of an effect it has. Like correlating uh, a carcinogen to cancer is it takes like decades upon decades to actually make that correlation. So I don't blame people in the 30s and 20s who smoked because. They probably didn't know. It was more, and you get some nicotine. It's a little bit of a stress relief uh, activity. Some of our shiuch used to do it back in Syria. They didn't know. But now that we have that clarity, I mean, it should be something that is dropped by human beings. When it comes to other aspects like vaping and shisha and I don't know for sure like whether it is. I'm sure it's not healthy. Uh, it's, not, it's not a good thing. But whether it's a full, it's, it's a full blast, uh, full-blown carcinogen in, in, that's equal to, to smoking. Some people like to say that that's worse than smoking. So we don't have that. We don't have that evidence. We just don't. Uh, we just don't have that that correlation uh, with it within the, within the medical field, but it's definitely not something that's healthy. And especially if you're young, you don't want to start doing that when you're 20, when you're when you're you know your your lungs are still technically developing, and you're if there is a possibility of there's a, that of a carcinogen being within these things, and you're subjecting your your body to it early on, then you're giving cancer a head start. You're, you're giving you're giving the possibility of mutations to occur inside of you uh, early on, and mutations take time. So if you're gonna start at 20, by the time you're 60, you have something that's mutated, and now you have to deal with uh, the fact that it's hard to control it. So it's best for younger people to kind of stay away from these uh, habits while them all together. In the interest of some myth busting, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. 
microwaving food in plastic containers? Yeah, we don't really have a lot of evidence to support that. Like, I think there were a few studies that came out. I can't remember. I think some of them were in Europe and one was in Japan, but there's really nothing to support that. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that came out over in, in the ni- late 90s, early 2000s about uh, about these things. Now, plastic itself, if it's consumed, is a carcinogen itself, okay. like plastic itself. I mean, whether you're mar- microwaving something inside of it, whether that uh, you know causes any problems, we just don't have that evidence. There's a lot of interest in, in uh, there's a lot of marketing benefits when you talk about uh, cancer and how to get rid of it. Like it, there's because the pe- people are scared of it and they have the right to be so. Like there's no, <laughs> I don't blame anyone to be. It's a horrible, horrible thing to you know, to be involved in and, and to be told that you got. But um, so people will hold on to stuff like that. Like oh, you know, don't uh, put right. your phone behind beside your bed when you sleep because right. of the uh, right. That another I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah. one. And like they always ask me, what about my phone? What's wrong with your phone? Should I put it beside my head at night when I sleep? Right. Like maybe. Just don't stare at it all day long, and you should be okay. Like yeah. I, don't, I don't think that piece is going to make that much of a difference. Maybe it's the, it's, it's the you know the, the the time we spend scrolling on our phones is way more detrimental to our health than than, than having it beside your head when you sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just don't have evidence. I'm not saying it is or it is not. It's just medicine is very is a, is a obviously evidence based uh, um, discipline. So if you don't have like clear evidence, uh, correlation sometimes can be wrong. If you just make a oh this, uh, if you just do a retrospective, retrospective study and you say oh here's the people who have the cancer, let's see how many of them had their phones beside their heads when they slept. It's impossible. All of them. Uh, yeah. That correlation may not be true because uh, you may have uh, everyone does that, and these people had it for a different reason. So so it's not always easy to to, to associate. Correlation does always, always mean causation or association that's appropriate. So sometimes if these studies don't they lack evidence. They're papers that are out there, uh, and scientists wrote them. It doesn't mean that it's Conclusive. There's a lot of, of medicine that you have evidence to support that later on turned out to be uh, uh, incorrect. But no, yeah, the uh, the microwaving. I mean, if you want to be safe, you can stay away from it. You know, use use something. Plastic is not a great thing to 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 overuse for the environment, for, regardless of anything else. So maybe not microwaving it is a good idea. Using glass or using uh, metal. Uh, you can't use metal. <laughs> don't, don't, don't use metal based on this podcast. <laughs> Burning your house down. <laughs> Right. So in the event of someone getting cancer, yeah. we talk about the treatment that's, that's available yeah. to us. Um, you talked about providing medicine yeah. in terms of uh, people who are terminally ill. What about before that? If there's anything as a step before you get to that yeah. point. Yeah. So every cancer is, is different. That's, that's the problem with cancer. There's, there's no cookie cutter answer for cancer in general. I'll try to make this as uh, if, if, if oncologists listen to this, they'll be like emailing me. <laughs> but, but here's <laughs> it's okay so, to keep the high level. Yeah, I'll give you that because <laughs> it, because so early stage cancers, um, early stage cancers, depending on there, if you catch them early enough, then most of them surgically can be removed. And if they're removed early enough, I mean with no it's negative margins, I mean there's no cancer on the margins, and there's nothing in the lymph nodes, then you can usually just kind of observe people, and most of the time it works out. The problem is that if if the cancer so the question is always, what fueled it? So why is it there? So we found a cancer somewhere, we took it out. So why is it there? Because if you don't fix the problem, then it'll just, it'll just pop up somewhere else later. Sometimes you can just do that. For example, some skin cancers, just every time they come up, just scrape them off. You can just have like a, a surgeon or a family. Doctor. Just take them out, uh, melanomas, if they're really early, you can just take them out and just you're, you're good to go. If another one comes up, you just take that one out as well. So some of them you can do that. And others, like breast cancer sometimes, if it's hormonally... Um, fueled, then it's not enough just to take it out surgically. You have to give medications to help suppress maybe certain hormones that were fueling it. So every cancer is very distinct, which is the problem with this uh, whole mm-hmm. discipline, that it's not, 
It's not like it's not as simple as germs and antibiotics. Which germ, antibiotic? You give this and you're good. It's it's not like that. And not all, like not all terminal cancers have medications that they be, that they, they can be given. And not all cancers can be removed surgically. Not so. It's very specific to the cancer site, the type of the cancer, meaning the pathology, whether mm-hmm. it's an adenocarcinoma, squamous cell, a small cell. What is it? Like what what exactly is there? Uh, now we're getting more and more in, you know detailed in understanding exactly what receptors exist on these cancer cells, what mutations. Dro- we're driving them like certain mutations that if you have in your genetics then you know, for, for ladies if she finds that she has this mutation uh, then then they would actually recommend that after a certain age they, they, they remove uh, get a hysterectomy or get a mastectomy just remo- even though you have no cancer because of the of the percentage me meaning you're at a higher you're, you're you're at a higher risk so high that it's just worth getting rid of getting rid of the organ altogether so so and I'm not saying that that's the perfect answer but this is where we are in terms of trying to figure it out so it's not it's not, a, I can't give you an answer that is going to be fulfilling for you. It's just, right. I always tell patients that the, big, the biggest problem with cancer is the uncertainty that uh, surrounds it, is that there's uncertainty. We like to have clear answers. How long can I live? Am I cured? Will I have to deal with this again? And I have to sit there and say, I don't know. Based on the studies I have, here's the curve. Here's the, here's the average. Here's what most people go through. But you're not a statistic. You're one person. Allahu alam, what side of the curve you lie and what exactly, I don't know. And people don't like that. And I don't blame them. If I was sitting in their position, I would want a clear answer. Like right. I want someone to tell me, this is how much I have or, or you're going to get rid of, like for bladder cancer sometimes, they come in and we have to decide uh, whether, now we know that this type of bladder cancer will spread. So we, want, we, we come up with a plan. The plan is going to be we give you chemotherapy up front and then we take out your bladder. And now you have a bag for, for urine, which is a really, it's a difficult uh, lifestyle adjustment to make. You know right. I mean? You have like a, you're walking, you're a man, and you, you, even when you're in bed with your wife, Yanni, you have a bag of urine kind of coming. It, it's not nice. Like it's not, I'm not saying that it makes it impossible to live. People actually have a reasonable quality of life with that. But when you think about it, when you're, when you're, you know, you're, you're functional elsewhere right. and you don't feel pain. Bladder cancer usually is not that painful. It's just, it seems something is, po- you see a little bit of blood, you go do a, a test, you find most of the time blood is not cancer, but you go, it is. And they do a cystoscopy, they find it that it's actually going into the muscle. So, so far you're fine. But if we leave it within a year and a half, it's going to basically go everywhere and cause problems. So we say, okay, we'll give you chemotherapy and we'll take it out. So what is, what is that going to lead to? Well, you have a probability of 85% of being cured. Right. What does that mean? What does that mean? 85% of being cured. I would recommend it. If it was my father or my brother or me, I would say, yeah, do it because this is your best chance. I tell you I, what I use. The analogy is like, if, if this is a horse race, I want to put you on the best horse to see if I can get you to the finish line. But right. I don't know if I will. Like you right. can do all of that and go through this surgery and then it pops up somewhere else. And now it's incurable. Now all we can do is just give you medications and see if we can prolong your life for a couple of years without it. But then you're like, well, why did I do that surgery and go through, go through hell? Like why do I have to go through all mm-hmm. of this? And that piece is, I think, the biggest problem with cancer. Inshallah, with time and the more invest, you know, if, if we learn to, as communities and countries to invest more of our you know, scientific minds in the study of cancer and the prevention of cancer and the treatment of cancer and, and we figure out a better relationship with the big pharma companies like uh, these co- these companies run trials and hundreds of millions of dollars to um, use drugs that treat cancer way down the road right mm-hmm. if we can figure out a bigger better relationship where they can make their money and we can still <laughs> take that away from people or or lessen the occurrence of cancer in the early stages of life if someone's in their late 80s 
getting cancer. And that's not a good thing. We don't want that for anyone, obviously. But that's different than someone who's 26. Right. right? I, 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 I treat sarcomas uh, as another site that I treat, which is bone cancer. And these happen usually in people who are really young. I have patients who like are 19 and 18, and they'll live a year and a half tops. It's a devastating thing to hear, mm-hmm. right? but that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Right. And I want to ask you about that psychological impact yeah, yeah. on people. I mean, especially when you tell, you give somebody that news mm. that, you know, their life expectancy is not expected to be very long. Yeah. Kind of what's their, I mean, well, well f- to do what I do, you have to have a certain understanding of the world. Like you have to have a certain life, a worldview that allows you to accept that this happens and that, uh, life is not fair. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is compassionate and merciful and a part of being alive is, is being a part of nature is undergoing the, the difficulties and the uh, hardships of nature. And nature is, can be cruel. And sometimes people who are really young, you have, uh, you have children. I couldn't do it. I actually, actually okay, when I, I, I got into oncology young, like when I was early on, and I couldn't do pediatric oncology. I couldn't do it. Like I spent two weeks on a ward, and I, I, had, to, I had to tap out and say, I can't do this. Like it's too hard for me. Kids are my, uh, my, my weak spot. Um, you have a three, four-year-old who has brain cancer is going to die. Like it's just hard. Uh, accepting that, like having a way to accept that or understand that this is a qada and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will you know, will, um, uh, compensate not only the child, but their families and understanding that that's a part of life and it can happen to anyone is for, for you as an oncologist is important. You have to have some way to understand it. You don't have to be religious. I think being, being a religious Muslim is very helpful in being an oncologist for sure. But then the person in front of you, I don't think there's any catalog that exists in the world that prepares you to hear the word cancer uh, afflicting you or someone you love. Like there's almost nothing, nothing prepares you for it. And I don't expect it to be. I don't think people should be walking around preparing themselves for cancer but there should there should be a worldview that allows them to accept that maybe that negative things do happen and there's sometimes nothing we can do about them the what we what we get trained in uh, a lot is is being able to break bad news is being able to speak to people and allowing them to uh, slowly understand uh, internalize accept uh, it, it, it's a, it's a process uh, it's a, it's actually a very difficult one uh, to go through to um, some people are quicker at accepting it and moving and, and fighting it and moving on and and some people aren't and they and they, and they struggle and um, in my experience it, unfortunately and I don't know if this is a maybe you guys take this out of the podcast or something Muslims don't do very well with this honestly in my in my, in my experience they don't do very well for some reason I I found that there are, that it's really not religion, unfortunately, that's making a difference in how people respond to to this news. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they, yeah, I I can't fix this for you, because that's a, I have to have this right. conversation almost every day. I go to work every day. Someone's going to be I have sitting down and say, "This is not curable," and the average is two and a half years. So hopefully we can get you beyond that, but that's all I can hope for. And the person is forty six or forty five, is sitting there with, with six kids or five kids. It's a very hard thing to say. So I find that people, it's really more. Their, un- their the maturity they have in understanding life itself meaning it, it allows them to kind of deal with this problem rather than i hate to say this but i think everyone should think about it for a second like for them you mm-hmm. know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah absolutely just think about like what 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 would what would you do if that if, if someone if that was said to you how would you respond I think if, if, if you understand your faith, Islam, yeah, uh, this is my qadr, this is my qadr, this is the qadr, I, this is the time he gave me on earth, and, I, and whenever he wants me back, uh, I'm ready to go, and I'll just, you know, it's actually, some scholars, or most scholars actually will say that it's better to know than to be, to leave life really quickly, 
Most people are like, no, no, I just want to uh, cease to exist. If, if, if you believe in the hereafter, if that's a part of your, of your understanding, then no, you don't want to be removed without uh, like a, an alarm being sounded a little bit beforehand so you can get your affairs in order. And maybe right. if you're not doing well, you do well and change the way you live and maybe make some, make some amends with people around you or uh, repent or something like that. If you leave altogether, then all, all of a sudden, then, then you didn't, Allah Alam, are you doing well? So that, that's a piece of it. But I also find that maybe to a certain degree, those who are waiting, who, who aren't living life the way they want to live it, and are waiting for something to happen so they can enjoy life, are the ones who struggle with this the most. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I saw an example of yeah. a guy. He's on Instagram. Yeah, he's thirty years old. Yeah, and he has a cancer. He just he's yeah. he's basically call it like live tweeting yeah. his yeah. entire procedure. He's a Muslim guy. Mm. Complete submission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like his mentality yeah. is that this is a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. Yeah. I've been given an opportunity yeah. Yeah. to think about and to rectify yeah. the things that yeah. I've had problems with. And I'm going to approach this in a way that is yeah. as comfortable as I can sure. for my family. Exactly. Yeah. But in a way that I understand that this is from Allah. Yeah. Yeah. And I submit entirely yeah. to that. And that's what's required in order for this to work. Right. Um, if you don't have that mentality, then 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 it's very hard. Like it's it's a very hard struggle. You end up suffering uh, ment mentally and psychologically, and people around you do too. And and the outcome is the same. Like most of the time, the outcome is the same. Like in a shafi who Allah subhanahu wa taala, we don't provide shifa. I provide treatments, not cures. I provide treatments. The treatments uh, we've been used. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. I don't know for sure. I can't swear that they will. Most of these people that we tried it with, we got a certain response. I hope that you get a better one. You're on the you know you're on the bell curve. I hope you're on the right side of the curve and you get even more. But I don't know. And people have to you, know, you have to have that. That no, this is a part of my life. This is what Allah subhanahu wa taala. This is the hand I was dealt. And there's nothing I could have done. Even if there was something to be done, you see, dwelling on your past is a waste of your time. You know, this is what I have right now. And just deal with it the way it is. Having that mentality helps a lot in dealing with the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But without that, it becomes a really. I remember there's a guy. He's in late late seventies. He 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 was wheeled in on a. Uh, he was in like one of those uh, uh, electrical wheelchairs. Scooters. Yeah. yeah, scooters. He was on oxygen, like at the time, and he had this new uh, kidney cancer. Now the guy had like seven or eight other heavy medical problems. He was a uh, a triple bypass uh, surgery survivor and he just he had a surgery in his heart his lungs were not working well his his legs were like uh, uh, basically pipes they were so big they were full of fluid like he was very sick and he had this very difficult cancer to treat that we do and I ever asked him like what is what are you hoping you know uh, we have to ask that question what is your expectation of today and what what we're going to be offering and talking about and this is what he told me I'll never forget this he told me told me I haven't lived yet you know he said, I, I haven't lived yet. I want to live. And he's 78 years old. Mm -hmm. And I said, Whoa. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to I didn't know how to respond. Like, I actually was kind of held. Like, I, I, there are certain responses you, you're used to. So you have like a way. Again, we're, my job is trying to make it's a, it's a bad, it's a difficult journey. My job is trying to make it as tolerable as possible for the patient. Like, if you're going to be stuck with this, then at least have someone who's going to support you and, and, and make 
you know, cushion every blow and make it easier for you, but also be honest with you so that you're not being lied to. Like I can't sugarcoat stuff and lie to you and say, you know, you'll be fine. I'll take care of you. And then, which is what we do by, by the way, back home. Like if you go back to the Middle East, we just lie to people about stuff, unfortunately, and don't even tell them they have cancer. I had an uncle who, who underwent a surgery of like a, a gastric, uh, gastrectomy. They removed his, and, he, and, they, and they didn't tell him he had cancer until afterwards. And I was fighting with the family to tell, yeah, I had to tell him like, you can't tell him it's an ulcer. We're taking it out. You have to tell him he has cancer. Right. He died six months later, but but yeah, you know, he, he actually knew, and it was good for him. Like it was, uh, it was therapeutic for him and for the family to find out. We try to shield people from this difficult news because we think they're going to be depressed and upset. You'll be surprised. Some pe- most people will be will deal with it. Uh, initially, obviously, there's a lot of emotions involved, but um, and that piece I think is what's missing is that if you're living life and what you're doing right now is not what life is to you, then and you're postponing life, then you're going to be really upset if it happens. Right. And if you're, li- but if you're living life, and this is this is what I'm doing. I believe in what I believe in, and I'm doing it right now. Obviously, there are milestones I'm achieving, but I'm living. It's not that I'm just waiting on life to happen to me, uh, which a lot of Muslims do, unfortunately. I don't know why. Like I've always thought about. I've, I've been, it's pretty, I have some assumptions, but I don't. Like, but there's always that we're waiting for, like, especially, here's, here's a, is it okay if I go on a tangent for this? Yeah, yeah go ahead. So here's, here's, I don't want to talk to it. So here's what, here's what I think. I think sometimes uh, Muslims watch other cultures just partying and you know, drugs and alcohol and women, just that life of just, you know, that flashy, enjoyable, and they are, you know, adhering to their religion and everything. So they feel, because they have a, a misunderstanding of what they have versus what others are doing. They feel that they're missing out on life. So if they mm. get diagnosed, they're like, ah, I didn't get to do anything and now I'm going to die. <laughs> which is, which is in my opinion, the a problem is that it's based on your understanding of the law that you follow. Right. This law is not to make you miss out on life. It's, allow you, it's, it's there to allow you to live life better, to actually enjoy it more. But if you don't see it that way, then yeah, this diagnosis is going to be extra devastating because it'd be more difficult because deep down inside you're like I want to do that I don't like this mm-hmm. uh, so which is why I tell people like it's uh, very difficult as a uh, as an imam to say these things but you know look you have to you have to come you have to live your truth like you have to come to a conclusion of what it is that you stand for and then live it and if this is a charade to you, then then don't waste my time and yours. Like you're wasting everyone's time. Just go do what you want to do, right? Or or t- spend enough time to understand why you're doing what you're doing, and then enjoy and embrace it. Because Islam is beautiful. If you enjoy it, you're actually living. You're actually happier than anyone else on the planet if you fully engage in it. And then if 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 life ends early, you don't feel like you missed out on anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like that. Right. Yeah. Because I've dealt with people who are who don't believe in anything. Like have no belief in a hereafter at all. And, and they deal with the cancer diagnosis way better right. because they've always lived the way they thought they were going to live. Like I'm not, and, and, and that's aside from like the, the, the akhirah piece. It's just, it's just a, on a psychological level, people should be living how they believe life should be lived so that whenever they run into a, uh, a musibah, whether it's cancer or something else, like it's not just cancer that ends life. There's a lot of other stuff that can end life. Uh, tragedies that come from outside or you know, uh, environmental uh, disasters can occur. Like anything can occur. Right. So if you're not living well, then uh, when, 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 it, when, it, when it ends quickly or you're stuck with a problem, then you're, you're, you're extra upset. You're more than you would be if you were living well. Right. That, if that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think the psychological impact of the... The psychological, um, I guess, perspective of the patient translates to the loved ones and the family oh, quite sure. a bit as well. Oh, for sure. For I mean, sure. I, 
we recently lost someone uh, very close to us as someone who was like an uncle to me oh, and the father of one yeah. of my close friends. Yeah. And the way that he handled it passed on to his sons yeah. and his family in a way that they were a lot more yeah. comfortable yeah. with the, mm. even the process yeah, of, of going through for everything. Sure, for sure. And I don't think that if he had handled it in that way, it yeah. would have made it as easy oh, for, for, sure. for oh, the for family. Sure. And it's already incredibly difficult. Oh, the, you project your, uh, as, a, as someone who's struggling with it, you project your uh, emotions and your uh, uh, values on the people who love you when they watch because they can't do anything yeah. about it. Like they, yeah, sit there and watch, right? <laughs> and so for those family members, yeah. what yeah. can they do to support, yeah. you know, a, I mean, a sick family? You know, member? very good. Uh, that, and that piece is really important. The, uh, in oncology, there's a rule that uh, uh, patients with stronger social networks do better. They even live longer. So it has an impact. Yeah, yeah, oh, psychological for sure. like, perspective. So, yeah, for sure. Patients who have a stronger family network around them, people who support them, people who help. They, they do better with treatments. They, they live longer on average. Um, if, if, you know, if, if, if you're psychologically sound, uh, I don't know if the word sound is correct here, but if, you're, if you've found a way to deal with this, you feel comfortable, you feel supported, you feel like you're listened to by your physicians and by your family members and you're supported by them, then you do better. So really, if you're in a position where someone you love has cancer, your job is just to be there for them. There's a, there's an urge to try and teach or tell them what to do or tell them how to feel or tell them how to respond. Really, as a loved one, that's not your role. Your role is just to be there for them. Just sit, support whatever that support, whatever they need. Like if they need someone to complain to, let them complain. If they need someone to rely on, let them rely on you. Don't carry. Uh, you can't carry them. You can't, like a person can't carry someone else's disease. They can't, you know, be irresponsible towards their treatment plan and towards their problem and make you carry all of it. But you still, you still have to be there for them on the psychological level that they that they require. And sometimes it's just being strong and being supportive and listening and you know being compassionate and being empathetic and. And there's no, really nothing else that you can do. And, uh, you know, not letting your emotions, again, not projecting your emotions as a loved one on them. A lot, a lot of times that happens where you're so sad that you make them feel worse. They don't need that. They're already dealing with the pain and this, the fear and, the, you know, it's an end of life type of thing, especially if it's, you know, more, or sometimes it's not. It's just like a new diagnosis. And then if they're more scared than you are, how are you going to deal with it? You're, you know, <laughs> you're stuck with this. And then now I know a lot of guys and girls, like ladies and men who, who get diagnosed and don't tell their family for months upon months, for months on end. They won't tell their family. They, they have to they deal with this alone. What are they worried about? Because like, they, they know that they tell their family, the family's going to lose their minds. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to start screaming and crying and calling everyone. People are going to be depressed. They're going to get a million uh, messages on their phone with people who want to know details. And guys who are here, try this, uh, you know, <laughs> this herb that I found on, that the sheikh on the TV talks about. <laughs> and then it becomes like this, this barrage of just, of just uh, you know, suggestions. And, uh, and that's not what a person needs. A person needs uh, support. And they need their people around them to be strong and to be yeah, there for them in a way that they allows them to, to internally deal with this with this problem that they have. And and unfortunately, a lot of our families aren't very good at that. And, and that's uh, that, that's 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 a problem. I think that people, if if you you know, it's, it may not be fair to ask people to imagine if you were diagnosed, but imagine if someone you loved was. I think that's a reasonable thing. Don't not anything specific, but imagine if you had to be dealing with a loved one who had it. Make sure you have like the right uh, understanding of. You have to be strong. For them, for their own sake, so that you can strong. Your weakness will project on them, and your strength will also. Yeah, it's it, uh, it, it's. Um, yeah, 
it's something that is infective, infectious. You know, whatever you, you you project will people will will pick up on, and it goes both ways. Like you said, the, the father, the gentleman who passed away, because he was strong, they were able to be strong. If if he wasn't, then they probably would have struggled or wouldn't know what to do. Right. Yeah. Do you think part of the reason why we struggle with supporting people is we've yeah. l- we've lost a little bit of that sunnah of visiting people when they're sick as a yeah. regular thing to do? Like we yeah. just we're out of practice. Yeah, it is out of practice. I I do a lot of it um, um, just be based because this is my yani, uh, discipline. So anyone who has cancer in the community, they'll reach out and then we'll I'll go and I'll spend time. I was just with a gentleman who has end stage uh, liver cancer. He's very young. He's very young. He has six kids. He's very very young, and he won't. Yani, Allahu alam. He won't be around for very long. And I took my I take my son Ahmed with me mm-hmm. to sit and listen and kind of watch. Life is. Life is not. Life is hard. We're very pampered now as a human, as a race, as a race. We're very. We live in bubbles where we because we see everything, and we see glamorous lifestyles, and we see so the expectations are way are are wrong, <laughs> much higher than than they ever were before, and and any any glitch in them becomes very you know causes a lot of a lot of stress and pain, and people don't know how to deal with it. And yeah, for sure this. We, if we, if we practice more of yeah, of just of just going and visiting and knowing how to do it, the problem is like we don't know how to do it. Even those who do it, they go and they, and they get emotional themselves and they make it harder for the person and they stay for like an hour and the guy is tired. Like five minutes, ten minutes, make dua for them, bring a gift, be encouraging, and then leave. Like, they just need that little positivity in their life, yeah, here and there, and know, and that understanding that people still care, that they're remembered, that they're not because they're sick, forgotten, and those people have moved on while they're still <laughs> while they're still alive. That feels really bad. Like uh, people are gonna move on when you pass away. That's for sure. That there's there's no way around that. We do that all the time. Like the reason that you and I are sitting here is because we moved on from people that lost their lives in our life. But people shouldn't feel that pe- others have moved on from their existence while they're still here. So that yatul madil is really nice. And there used to be a group here in London who did it. They would just go visit people. Yeah, yeah. There used sick. to be a group of uh, older brothers. Uh, I think I think brother Ashraf Rani uh, used to do this. He used to take people and go to. Uh, to the hospitals just to visit people who are ill, not specifically if they had cancer, but just people who are ill for whatever right. you know, for whatever reason. But for sure, if they have like a terminal illness, they 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 benefit from it. Yeah, for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that we have to get back to. I mean, even if you go back to that concept of yep. being a caretaker and and thinking about others mm-hmm. and and going to visit them and like 100%. you said, lift their spirits a yeah. little bit. And yeah. it's something that we have to get back into yeah. the practice. Well, of doing in your capacity, you, you're not if you're not a physician, so you can't actually bring treatments. Then what can you do? So mm-hmm. caregiving is just the concept of okay, what. I care for this person. I want to do my part in helping them. So what is that? So just make sure you play within your lane. Just stay within your lane. Just play, yeah. you know, within the limits of what you can do. If you're not a physician, don't come to this poor person and start talking about every single <laughs> myth that you've heard and what can help. Because now you're giving them all this false hope and you're getting them all worked up on stuff and you're making them stay within your lane. What is your role here? And then, then do that. If you're a friend, just be a friend. Be a good friend. You know, uh, take something off their hands if, if if they're worried about it that you can take off their hands. For example, if you're good at something, whatever it is that you do, yeah, and, and they have an aspect of their lives within that discipline that or that field that they're worried about, uh, do that. Take that for them. Right? Right. And and that's really really what uh, what we owe one another. And it's pay it forward, really, right. and you, or sometimes even payback. But it's, it's it's paying it forward because you will be in a position, not necessarily cancer, will but yeah, you'll be in a position where, where you want you need people to do that for you, and, right. and you'll want to for sure. I've seen something that's really nice that I like is people that you know, maybe busy or far away, yeah. you know, if something occurs to one of your friends that yeah. lives a couple of hours away, 
is just sending like an Uber Eats yeah, to oh their yeah. house oh yeah. or sending them meals or something like just so, like so you can like yeah, so you can maintain <laughs> that um, that connection even when you don't have the time to oh, necessarily sure. go yeah. for, in person, but yeah. at least a phone call and yeah, gifts, so just a gift, uh, send a gift, yeah, flowers, anything, anything that people we like to be, we like to know that people care and that we're remembered and that we matter, right? That that's very valuable and. And any gesture that, that shows that, regardless of what it is, is you know, goes a long way with people. It really does. Yeah, like, subhanAllah. Like, I, I always, it's funny, when you walk into a, you ask patients, they do, they do patient surveys and, and ask people, like, what they, what they liked about coming, for example, working with this doctor or that doctor. And they would, they'll say stuff like, the reason I like this doctor was just because every time he walked into the room, he asked me about my son. Like he remembered that I had a son that I really I was proud of, and he always asked me, well, "What is he doing now? Where is he now?" That just caring, just seeing them as a person rather than a a disease. <laughs> just you're a person. Yeah, you're you have a disease, but you're a per, you're still a person. You still have all these hopes and dreams, and you know you're still very complex. You're not just your disease. You're not just a patient. Mm. You're a human being, and you you want to be seen as such in life. Uh, so every time someone visits you. They're all depressed and upset because, um, you know, because you have a disease. You're no, you're no longer a human to them. Like you feel like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just the disease. I'm just the uh, the illness. Uh, sometimes they want someone to to come uh, come over and just do something fun. Like just take me back to being a person for a minute. Let me, can we just do that for a second? Do we have to talk about this? Because uh, uh, Marda don't like people. Like if they get seven visits a day, for example, five minutes each, but the whole visit is just talking about the cancer, asking, okay, so now what are you, what are you on? And what's the doctor saying next? So they have to relive this like seven times a day. Of course they're going to be upset. But if you come in and you just, I'm not saying ignore that they have it, but just make them feel more, human and it's meaningful for them to so that's a big piece as well sometimes friends just go in and just uh, joke around with them a bit and just let them feel that yeah you're still you're still the man <laughs> right right, right. <laughs> you're, still, you're still my bro like we'll still chat about stuff sometimes they need that yeah and it's, it's being sensitive that social iq that allows you to know what where, where are they right now in terms of uh, of their mentality yeah right. <laughs> i want to ask you with Ramadan. what a depressing podcast you're with me here <laughs> It's talking getting, about cancer is never, never fun. There's, there's nothing good about talking about it. <laughs> uh, people oh. ask me why I do this. Uh, yeah. My family members, uh, it's just a lot of cancer in my family. Mm. There's a lot of cancer in my family, like way more than probably other families have. And we don't really have any mutations in our family. I think it was, I think they probably spilled something in our, in our area, like close to, because we, we live in close to Mount Hermon, Haramun. It's right at the triangle of Lebanon, Palestine, and Syria. So uh, something was spilled in that mountain because uh, we're, we're farmers. People eat from the ground, and it's like everyone has. Uh, I didn't even know death was possible outside of cancer until I was like 18. Like because wow. <laughs> everyone, everyone everyone just died from some type of uh, either leukemia or or some other cancer, and and it became obvious that we had a problem in our in our uh, I mean, not just in our family but in our in our area. So we became interested in kind of looking into it more. But it's definitely not. Uh, <laughs> an uplifting not a fun, topic. Not a fun topic. <laughs> no, topic. not at all. Sorry. <laughs> right. So uh, Ramadan is three weeks away. Yeah. As insane as that is to think about, and by the time we put this out, it'll probably be about two weeks away. Allahumma balighna Ramadan. I've been seeing a lot of these things online that I want to ask yeah. you about sure. as it relates to cancer prevention or yeah. treatment and yeah. fasting. Sure, sure, sure. So these like online yeah. uh, fitness experts are doing yeah. these 72 hour water fasts sure, and sure. all this kind of thing. Sure. So I was wondering if you've come across any research that you think is actually, so we don't have any evidence that these things prevent cancer, but what we do know is that fasting is very healthy to the human body. Like the less you eat, 
the healthier you are, as long as you're giving your body enough nutrients, like the, the amount of nutrients that it requires to survive. Anything beyond that is actually not helpful to the human body, like the, the, the fat pads that we carry that I um, <laughs> my one pack that I have here is not is not a healthy thing to have. Like it's not it's not good for you by any means. Eating less, we know for sure, is healthier, and that goes across the board. It's not specifically for cancer, but the idea of well, you know, sugar causes cancer, and sugar we don't like again we don't have evidence now. Could it um, uh, contribute to it for sure? It can contribute to it, but I, we don't have evidence that stopping it will will eradicate any form of, of cancer occurring. These, these fasts that come up on like social media and people, I don't know. I don't have evidence to support that that's good. But fasting in general, like Ramadan in general, if it is um, practiced appropriately where you actually eat less throughout the month, then, then you, it, it, is, it is, is healthy and it's uh, for sure healthy you know, from a cancer prevention perspective. There's, there's, there's benefit there. How, I can't quantify that for you or tell you what it looks like. But uh, we don't do that, unfortunately. We just overeat at night. That's, that's kind of what Ramadan has turned into where you don't eat during the day and then you just unleash yeah, after Maghrib until Fajr. And that, that has to change. You actually have to... Your stomach, if you do Ramadan appropriately or correctly, your stomach shrinks... Hunger is based on how big the pouch is. It's how big the okay. empty empty pouch is. So the bigger the the big sorry the bigger the emptiness inside, the hunger hungrier you feel. So people who are really big uh, feel hungrier. They actually do. Like uh, if, if a person who is standing there, they're they're petite and small, and they don't eat very often. Uh, they're hungry, but the, the the overweight person who hasn't eaten, they feel hungrier because their pouch is bigger. That's why they do the gastric bypass surgery. They take out the they make the pouch smaller, mm -hmm. so they feel less hunger. But then it's of course a psychological habit to get rid of stress through eating, so you make your pouch bigger again, and then you go back to the same problem. So if you eat Ramadan appropriately, like you actually fast well and you don't overeat at night, your stomach over Ramadan will get smaller and smaller, and you'll actually be able to survive on less food throughout the day afterwards. Like even you don't fast after Ramadan immediately, but you can survive on less food. Now you don't want to, but you can. Like you feel less hungry. The Prophet ﷺ in mean, the Sahaba, if you think of these stories, they would take rocks and they would tie them to their stomach. Why? Because when you tie a rock to your stomach, it squishes the stomach, the, the, the gastrum, the stomach. So the emptiness is, there's no emptiness anymore. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're sticking the two pieces together so you don't feel as hungry. So it actually works. So biologically, right, right. it does work. I've seen people doing this in Gaza. Yeah, well, they do it now. Oh, well, in, in, especially in the north. Especially in the north, people are, you know, there's actual, people actually starving. Like people don't have access to wheat or barley or, or sometimes even, even fresh water. Uh, I don't think the South is that different, but for sure in the North, there is a lack of, of basic uh, basic resources. And that's just, I mean, that's a whole, I don't, I don't think this, this uh, podcast is for that, but the, for sure it's, it's devastating to think that there are people who are living in probably the richest area on Earth in terms of resources when it comes to, uh, to, to water and land and food. And, and they're surrounded by people who are, are you know on both si on every side that are that have more than enough and they, we just can't get it to them so they can eat it's just devastating but yeah it, it does it does work unfortunately yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the, and the the fasting on Mondays and Thursdays I guess is it yeah, it's a regularly through it to Sunday, yeah it's a very it's, it's very helpful yeah, yeah healthy oh yeah very healthy fasting again fasting but appropriately like fasting where you don't what's the point if you fast for seventeen hours and then you go and you eat more than you would have over the over the um, um, the, um the course of the 24 hours that you were in, 
I don't, we don't have evidence that it's better. So, some fitness experts will say, no, it's fine because you're, and then they make something up about the body's metabolism and stuff. I don't know if it's true. Like, I don't have evidence that that's true. Um, but, but if you do lessen, the Prophet ﷺ meaning you'll never fill up a vessel in your life that's more detrimental and evil to you than your own stomach. The worst thing you'll fill in your life is your stomach. Like, you'll fill other stuff. This is the worst thing to fill up. So if you have to, then break it down into thirds. Like no, nothing more than two thirds, where it's the, the two thirds are broken down half food and half uh, half liquid, half water, and just just, just water, or or or, or uh, milk, for example, and something that's uh, that's that's helpful. Um, but I, I, you do more than that. We don't do that. We we Arabs. Oh, Allah. Allah. That was something I had to eliminate. Yeah, I had to talk we to friends. We eat until <laughs> we're you know we we can't breathe anymore until we fall back like we are you know b- 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 mammoths that uh, <laughs> we have no and that's that's not he- that is where it's, that's really what's not healthy because you're expanding that uh, that pouch when you do it the pouch was this big and now when you ate that much it's a little bit bigger nothing that is measurable on a scan but over ten years you'll go from this to this and now you're a hungrier person. And if at 10 o'clock you haven't had your breakfast, you can't function. You can't think straight. You can't do anything. You can, you can reverse the process, but it's way more difficult when you're that, when you've you know, gotten into the habit of eating that much. And uh, that's why people struggle the first day of Ramadan, the second day of Ramadan, it's really hard. That coffee in the morning, that breakfast, that <laughs> lunch, yeah, whatever it is that you're used to. And you, but, but once you get, by the end of Ramadan, it's not that bothersome anymore. So actually, you don't have to go back to all of your bad habits after Ramadan if you don't want to. And that's what Ramadan is for. I'll say this maybe has something to do with your podcast. But Ramadan is not, uh, and I teach it in Tuskia sessions that I do. Ramadan is not to teach you good habits. Because Ramadan is a large adjustment, right? It rips out your schedule and puts in one that's very different. That type, that type of change is not to help you build good habits. It's there to get rid of bad ones. Okay. Good habits are built through through small adjustments and baby steps and small changes. Getting rid of bad habits, you need a you need like toll turkey. You need something to be ripped out. So mm-hmm. Ramadan comes and it actually gives you the opportunity to get rid of bad habits. So what I ask people to do is think of in Ramadan, don't think about the don't just think about the good habits you want to build, which is nice. But think about the bad habits you want to get rid of. Because if, if, if once Ramadan is done, you just go back to what you were doing before, then you didn't benefit from the month because the month allows you to get rid of overeating and overconsumption, you know, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, something to right. w- for sure to think about as the month yeah, uh, accelerates in terms of... And, <laughs> and as people it. listen to this two weeks away from Ramadan, what can they start doing to prepare for that? So I would say uh, a, a journal is helpful, meaning write down what your bad habits are. Like sit down and really think what your bad habits are and be specific. Like, be specific. And ter- don't get, tell me, oh, I'm far away from Allah. Uh, we're all, uh, what are you doing? Everyone's like that. Give me exactly what it is that you're not doing, that you should be doing, or that you are doing that you don't want to do. Now, the good habits, be, yeah, Ramadan is not going to fix them for you, but it will give you a head start. It's like a booster for you to continue small habits, good habits continue. You can't continue to fast every day and pray all night. It's impossible. Ramadan is just for that. But you can pick up a good habit. Like if you haven't been praying all five prayers and you're, you want to, it'll help you adjust that. But then look at really the bad stuff. What am I not, what am I doing that's not helpful to me? And then identify them and then uh, see how Ramadan helps you get rid of if you if you practice Ramadan appropriately. You don't have time for bad habits. For you to keep a bad habit in Ramadan requires like a lot of work. Like you, mashallah, I, I tip my hat. Like if you held on to a bad habit in Ramadan, you really put in the effort to hold on to that habit because Ramadan doesn't allow for it. Like it doesn't give you the doesn't give you that uh, flexibility. And so you're you're actually putting in you're you're putting in effort to hold on to a bad habit. But if you practice Ramadan appropriately, you'll you won't have that habit. And then if you identified that, I got I actually got rid of that in Ramadan. 
then you can continue consciously to, to stay away from it after Ramadan and it'll work for you. So I just tell people to, to write down a plan for Ramadan, including the good habits, the small steps you want, the boosters that you're going to use in terms of building some good stuff, but also, and, and separating them. Don't do this, oh, I'll remove this bad habit and put in this good one. No, it doesn't work like that. They work in parallel. They don't work in, uh, they, they, don't, they don't cross lines. Like building good habits is one thing. Getting rid of big bad habits or bad habits is a whole different thing that you're mm -hmm. going to do separately. And Ramadan is a really good, good tool for that. One thing that I found about Ramadan is it's very uplifting in terms of understanding your own strength and ability. For and sure. so if you're able to get rid of your most basic necessities yeah. of food and water yeah. and restrict yourself, yeah. then how it should be in theory, once you realize your strength, yeah. that I can get rid of these most basic yeah. needs, yeah, yeah, yeah. then I can do everything else. Oh, for sure. And yeah. it's very comforting and it gives you that confidence boost Potential you need tells to you get you, rid of those. Yeah, your, 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 your potential is way higher than you think. Right. If you were able to get through a full day of work with, with nothing, then what, what you were using before were just extras. So with those extras, you should go farther. Which is like, like the first day after Ramadan when you go to work, you feel like, why is everyone complaining? <laughs> this is an amazing day. I get to have you know breakfast today. Like I get to eat something throughout the day. You guys, <laughs> why are you so depressed? Everyone's like I'm <laughs> pulling their feet in on Monday, and you're like, this is nah, this is a piece of cake. I did this for three thirty days, starving. I can know. So it gives you that. But then you, if if you don't consciously take time to notice that and realize it and make some changes, it just, it, you forget about it. And then until the next Ramadan, you don't no, notice it again. And we're people, we're creatures of habits and we just go back to bad habits if we don't uh, consciously watch out for them. How we can, oh, now I, I have more energy, I have more time and I can use utilize it better. And I'm not tired. I can actually focus more on this than it. Because in Ramadan, I was trying to and it was very tiring in my brain. I had to, you know, push myself beyond my limits to try and just understand what I was doing and stay, stay focused. And now it's easy. So just do better. Your qu the quality of your work should go up and the quality of the time that you spend should, should increase for sure. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I did was um, before last Ramadan, yeah. I wrote down in a journal yeah. my ideal day. Oh, nice, nice. So I sat down and said, what is my ideal day going yeah. to look like yeah, in yeah. Ramadan? So I want to know what your ideal day looks like. <laughs> There's really no idea. The days are pretty much standard. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I it's, The best version uh, of yourself. I mean, it? this uh, it's, it's pretty much, my days in Ramadan are pretty much the, the same every day. It's uh, Fajr, I wake up for Suhoor, wake up the kids, and then I come for Fajr, and then we give the dars afterwards for like half an hour or so. After that, yeah, yeah, you uh, go home. Depending on the day, if it's uh, an early day, then I just uh, sit there and do my uh, do my Quran and tasbih. Or if I have some work, I finish my work and then I go to work uh, and spend the day there. I come back usually. I come back if I'm lucky. I get back home around 4:30 or 5. If I'm unlucky a little bit later, but if I get home a little bit reasonable, I come home and I just lie down for like a half an hour, just maybe fall asleep after also just for a little bit, and then I wake up and uh, to spend time with the kids. We have our futur. Uh, I come after Futur, I have my Futur, we pray Maghrib, we have Futur, and then maybe I, I only eat uh, dates and water and have some soup. Sometimes, if I'm lucky, if, I, if I'm, I, I break the habit every once in a while, but usually just that's all I do for Futur. And then I have to come here because I have a dars like a 40 minutes before Aisha, so I have to be here early to set things up. We, I give the dars, we do our tarawih. I finish tarawih, and then I go home, I have um, leftovers. It's actually a really good thing to try. Like, no one does it, see, everyone's all about toughness, but no one, I dare you. So here, here, I'll give you there. Yeah. In Ramadan, <laughs> when I, at Futur, only have water, dates, and a little bit of soup. Don't eat. Your wife made amazing food. Just don't eat. What See if happens? you can do it. What's going to happen? If What's going to happen is you're going to learn something about yourself. You're going to learn that you are fasting just because for the promise of food. And that's not a healthy way to fast. Fast not for the promise of food. And when you do it, and you find this no big deal, that I can come after Tarawih, 
and have leftovers and then go to sleep because you can't eat as much, that you start fasting throughout the day, not necessarily focused on Maghrib Adhan. Like Maghrib Adhan is not your, your, you know, your, your, your salvation. Like it's just, yeah, well, I'll, now I'll get some water in. And, it, it, and it's, it's healthier for you in terms of the fasting itself. You'll eat less. And it changes your mentality towards fasting altogether. Uh, I, I give this uh, as a task for students every year. Maybe one or two of them try it for a couple of days and then they cave. Most people can't do it. But once you do it, it makes a big difference in how you view fasting. You pray better at night because you're not full. If you come here and you have a full stomach, you're standing there, you know, you're, you're half, you're, you're almost intoxicated. Like you can't even, you're not listening to the Quran. You can't wait for the imam to be done. You're, 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 your burp is a public health hazard every time. <laughs> like like it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a healthy way of doing it. But if you, if you actually do it differently and you're, you, know, you eat very little, you come here, you're actually still very much uh, energetic. You're able to enjoy the prayer, you enjoy the night. And then you go have something and you eat less because at night you don't, you don't eat as much and you want to go to sleep because I have to go eat and then immediately crash like I have to sleep because I only have a couple of hours to get up again and again and that's my day every day and then at the end of the last 10 nights obviously it becomes much more difficult because of the Hajjud and I usually give like a after Alistair there's like a lecture at the last 10 nights so it becomes a little bit more uh, taxing and I start but I usually take some time off so I steal an hour here and an hour there like uh, throughout the uh, if I'm lucky I go home after Fajr and if my light, my day starts a little bit late like it's 9.30 or something I get, I get like an hour Right, <laughs> I slip an hour of sleep in there and then get up and, and, <laughs> and go to work. But it's just like a little bit of um, you're on a it's like a marathon. Like you're running a marathon. You just you just keeping keeping yourself above water. Just focus. You have no time. There's really no time for leisure. Like weekends, weekdays are all the same to me. Like weekdays weekends are just helpful. But I go home. I don't have to go to work. So I get to sleep. I get to go home and get a good night's sleep. And then wake up and it's just you know doing. You want to keep it. You do as much Quran as possible throughout Ramadan. You want to do as many tasbihat and adhkar. You want to do a lot of knowledge seeking. You want like I try to use the time Time, look at the time that I have doing that, and then of course you still have your family to take care of. So <laughs> the, the, yeah. time management in Ramadan is very much is much more difficult because it's just you don't have as much uh, time to actually give, and you're much more tired than you are outside right. of it. So I don't know if it's an ideal day, but it's uh, I love it. I find it very. You know, I look forward to Ramadan. I never. I always look forward to Ramadan. It's my favorite part of the year. Um, people who know me from years ago, I, I you know I. I always push like Ramadan is you know, make it the best. This is going to be your best time of your life. You'll love it. Yeah, yeah, it's tiring a little bit, but you'll look back at it and say that was good and it helped you out and it made you a better person and strengthened you and gave you something that you didn't have before. And it's like your batteries. It's like your batteries like at that, you know, that you read time where it's just like one, your battery's empty. And he said, Ramadan comes in and catches you just before it kind of, you're pulling, you're, you're, you die off and it, and it fills you up again. And you, you feel all energized after Ramadan. And you can go, hopefully, get you through the year, inshallah. Because <laughs> yeah. you feel, the farthest away from all you feel is actually just before Ramadan because it's just that that, uh, that lack of good habits. Yeah, you know, right. it, it sets in. <laughs> this Ramadan in particular, I think, yeah. is going to be, very well need, very needed for people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think people have been through very difficult yeah. past four months or so. Yeah, one hundred thirty days or more. In a lot of cases, it's been beneficial for some people in the sense that it's forced them to put things in perspective yeah, yeah. and to turn back to the things that they should yeah. be doing and they know yeah. that they should be doing. Yeah. And this may be the first Ramadan for a lot of people yeah. that they yeah. feel really engaged and yeah. they feel. Inshallah. So I'm I'm looking forward to this Ramadan from that perspective as yeah. an uplifting yeah. uh, thing for people. I am a little worried that the focus will become on rituals yeah. and turn slightly away from the social justice piece yeah. and you know from striving. I that think, perspective, in my so. opinion, it's, it's 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 very much connected. I think this Ramadan, at least the motto that I'm going to put out for this Ramadan, is is uh, this is your chance to change. 
this is your chance to turn things around for yourself. If you don't, if you have not come to the conclusion that it's worth doing at this point, then I don't think anything will. And if you saw, if you're in you know, the last 130 days, I put things into perspective for you, and you feel like you know, life should be lived differently, and we should be different people, and you want to make that change, well, here you go. Here's your here's your opportunity to make that change. If you've wanted to make it all your life, Ramadan is there. So yeah, I don't think it's wrong to fully embrace in the rituals and, and strengthen your connection with Allah and, and, and learn about yourself and learn about your purpose and what you're here to do and, and get rid of those bad habits and start building new ones for the sake of being a better Muslim so you can be a better person for the causes that we need to be better for, which I think is, so I think actually, it, it, inshallah, it's compl- yeah, obviously it's not to capitalize on anyone's pain, but sometimes these things happen and we have to make the best of them. Like we have to take the, the benefit from what occurred. What occurred was a wake up call for the ummah in general. Um, we, had, we had gotten into a little bit of a, I don't know, uh, kind of plateaued, a little bit of a slum. We just got used to things. Everyone was just kind of focused on themselves, on their building their homes and furthering their careers and kind of and then this came and happened and reminded us that's not how life is going to be lived and that's not what our message is as a nation as an ummah of the prophet and his teachings and we have to be better and we have a good reason to because when we're not people people suffer and people die if you were a better we were a stronger uh, uh, more functional ummah this wouldn't have happened like uh, they wouldn't have dared do all this like the 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 the, the, the national the international silence that we that we're witnessing and this uh, national accept international acceptance of uh, uh, of, of of just killing of, of Palestinian uh, uh, people, children and women and elderly and and, and bombing of hospitals and, and, and just this ongoing brutality that they're showing uh, this small strip that's smaller than London. Um, is just is because we we have no voice and because we have no strength and that strength is accumulative meaning the strength of the ummah is the sum of the strength of the individuals that 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 that, that make up that ummah that that compromise yeah, that, that, that make the make up the ummah and if you want to to see a change in, in this status then we have to start by lo- looking at our taking a long look at ourselves and deciding okay how am I going to be different how am I going to live my life. And, and Ramadan is the only time that I'm aware of within the year that grants you that ability to turn things around and re- make a full repentance and, and just you know, jumpstart your life in a different direction. So that's what I think the motto should be. I think that should be the, um, the, you know, the, uh, the mentality that, okay, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm, I can't afford to be like this anymore. I have to change, and, and now is the time. Ramadan, here it is, change, yeah, change. You can be better, you know you can, why? <laughs> you owe it to yourself, you owe it to the people. Uh, they're us, they're not like us, they are they are us. We, uh, look at them, the, all the, the, they look the same as our children, they speak this, the same language as the same uh, dean, as the, all human beings are. Like, I don't even look at this as, it's just a, but I mean, you have a bigger reason, you have a, you have a, you have more affiliate, you know, affinity to this to this problem because there's the similarities. There's so much in common, so you can't you can't ignore it, Yanni. Sometimes I'm not saying you should. Honestly, human beings should should feel for for all living things. That's what caregivers is about, right? Like to care for right. everything. Uh, but you know, when you have a, a, a stronger reason to care for a specific group or a specific problem, then then it's very hard to, to accept or to rationalize why you wouldn't. And if you're struggling, if people are struggling with their affinity or their adherence or their, you know, uh, lifestyles or the closeness to Allah and their closeness to their deen and closeness to this social uh, justice problem, then Ramadan is their opportunity to turn the, uh, you know, turn the ship around and, and make a difference, which is, I'm hoping, what we push Ramadan, inshallah, to be. 
I think that's a perfect place to close. Yes, inshallah. Thank people. you for having me. Well, this is very nice. <laughs> this is an open invitation. Anytime you feel like you want to talk about anything. No, you don't want me doing this. <laughs> I never know what I You're, you're up, welcome so. back, of course, at any time. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate it. It's very nice. And may Allah grant this uh, this initiative, Barakah, and uh, may there be benefit, inshallah, for people. And I hope to listen to you, inshallah, do this for years to come with, uh, with individuals who are much more interesting than me and have more better things to say, inshallah, we, could, we can all benefit as a as a community, inshallah. Thank you.